All right, good evening, everybody. Whether you're joining on the GoTo meeting or you're uh, going to be listening to this uh, on the recording, um, welcome to the first session uh, of a Messianic Prophecy series that we'll be kind of doing here um, moving forward on a week to week basis on Monday nights, 7 30 p.m. Eastern Time. Um, and uh, I know a lot of folks will probably be wanting to catch the uh, the replays of this on the on the New Creation Studies website. Uh, no worries at all if you're able to to jump in and watch it live. Uh, you know this is kind of kind of designed to uh, be interactive. GoToMeeting is a great format for that. Uh, you know with with the webcams and and everything else that uh, you're you're able to um, you know just kind of see um, you know and, and interact and, and hear and. Uh, all that good stuff. So really excited for everybody uh, to, to be able to, to come on in and kind of see um, what this Messianic Prophecy thing is all about. So so why why Messianic Prophecy? Why did I decide, let's do a session on, on Messianic Prophecy? Well, I, I think first and foremost, I think when, when you're dealing with, with folks outside of Christ, uh, not in the church, the evidential and proof-based value that Messianic prophecy gives is really what sets the Bible apart as the Word of God. Um, no other book out there has what the Scripture has. It stands alone from everything else. There, there's not even a, a book that can compare. Um, I've done I've done studies with just about every major religion out there, um, including uh, some some studies with uh, with an Imam and. Um, in Islam, uh, one of their scholars for about six months straight, uh, every week. And, you know, flat out asked, you know, Hey, prove to me that the Quran is the word of God. And so they went through their, their, uh, presentation on that. And, and quite honestly, there was, there was nothing supernatural, uh, that, that would, that would prove that. So, you know, being a person that, that needs proof, I'm a skeptic by nature. I just don't believe something because somebody tells it to me. Uh, I wanted to make sure that, my faith was built upon something that was solid, not on hearsay, definitely not on an emotion or an experience, uh, but on on actual actual proof, uh, a fact based faith. And you all know, uh, or a lot of you probably know from from being out there working with folks, the fact that your faith can be built upon facts or, or proof or evidence kind of blows people away because they they believe that faith is the opposite. Of facts and proof and evidence, they, they they think that you know it's it's you believe it in spite of not having any of those things, and, and that nothing could be further from the truth. Think about it from this perspective: if and this is always I was like using hypotheticals when I'm talking to people outside of Christ. You know, if there is a God, and he's a he's an all-knowing, all-seeing God, do you think it would catch him off guard that there would be a lot of competing philosophies? A lot of competing religions that are that are vying for people's worship and, and, and submission. No, not at all. So, wouldn't you think that he would make sure that there was a way to determine which one of these systems is truth? Uh, and so, some of them might say, "Well, uh, they're all truth. All paths lead to God." You know, the the beautiful you know coexist uh, bumper stickers that you might see everywhere. Um, I've seen several of the. Uh, alternative viewpoints. It's kind of the same symbols and it says contradict instead of coexist. You might've seen those before. Um, 
on on the face, many many different religions. Um, matter of fact, all of them they they all contradict at a fundamental level. Not even on the peripheral things, but on a fundamental level, they contradict. So it's we can't have all paths lead to God. It just it just doesn't work. <clears throat> so. God's going to, you know, if, if he's there and, and there is a thing called truth, and again, these are hypotheticals, but it's, it, it's good to get people thinking and talking about these things. If there is such a thing as truth, wouldn't God, if he is, if he is all-knowing and omnipotent and, and, and uh, as, as amazing as he is supposed to be, wouldn't it make sense that he would leave something out there for us to be able to determine this is true, this is not? Uh, in other words, which book has his thumbprint? Which book has his signature in it? Messianic prophecy is a beautiful, beautiful thing that does exactly that. It helps us to understand which one of these books truly is the one that was written by God. So we'll, we'll go in, in through some of the value of, of the prophecy here, but that's one of the reasons why I, I wanted to, to hit that up front uh, with creating this this study. It's something that I've taught quite a bit. Um, I, I utilize, matter of fact, when, another reason why I teach this is because, you know, I, I went to Bible college, as, as uh, those of you who know me know, um, had a lot of classes that weren't necessarily that great. I mean, I think in college, everybody can, can kind of get that. But there were some classes that were just flat out phenomenal, you know, and you have certain professors that really make an impact on you. My Old Testament professor was one of those. Uh, so this was probably my favorite class uh, in college, um, besides like Hebrew or something like that. Um, just wonderful. And no idea how, how much I would actually use it later on, but I've taught this course many, many times. Um, matter of fact, I just got done teaching it to, to the folks here in, in the Virginia area at the, uh, at the church that, that I preach at. Um, so we'll go ahead and, and kind of get started. Um, one other quick note uh, about one of the other reasons why, and I think this is just as important to me um, as the proof side of things, is the fact that what prophecy shows us is why God was planning on doing what he was going to do. In other words, when we look at the Old Testament and we look at the people of the Old Testament more specifically, one of the things that we find is that they were, by and large, uh, a huge disappointment. Um, there were pockets of faithfulness. There were certain characters and people that, that pop out as being faithful. There were certain generations that we can look at as, as that, that were faithful. But by and large, especially the northern kingdom of Israel, completely unfaithful. Um, maybe one or two small little pockets where the glimmer of, of uh, restoration started to, to, to shine forth. The southern kingdom, mostly apostate, little little bits of, of faithfulness. And so one of the things that you see with the Messianic prophecy, and then also the prophecies concerning the kingdom, the church, the people that God was going to create, one of the things that you find there that's, that's really important, why God was going to do this. One of the reasons he was going to do this, and we'll, we'll get into these later on, was he was passionate about bringing about a people that we're actually going to be able to live according to the standards that he set. And you see that all over the place. And I think one of the, one of the reasons why there's so much debate, so many questions about um, the potential of the Christian, can we really walk like Christ, is because there's a lot of misunderstanding of the Old Testament prophecies. 
and you know, kind of what God really thought of people in the Old Testament. In other words, the people of the covenant that was to come were not just going to be the same disappointing have the same disappointing character as the old covenant people. No, no, no. They were going to be able to walk in the ways of God. Yes, they were going to have forgiveness. Yes, they were going to have righteousness uh, uh, declared to them. But all of that was designed to bring about a people who would actually be able to walk uh, on that highway of holiness that Isaiah 35 talks about. So with that in mind, we'll go ahead and, and get started. This is going to be an introductory study. Going to kind of lay a little bit of background there. Um, and, and one of the things that, that I think is really important when it comes to, to Messianic prophecy is recognizing what, what, what evidence is there that these existed in the Bible before Christ? Uh, and really, the answer to that is really simple. The Dead Sea Scrolls, um, as a matter of fact, it, it kind of destroys any argument that the prophecies were added in after the time of Christ. Um, because we have the Dead Sea Scrolls, you know, uh, second, third century, uh, maybe even a little bit earlier than that. I'm not, this isn't a class on the Dead Sea Scrolls, but I think there's a really good argument that can be made because of the community of the Essenes where they were and the fact that they were a separatist type of community, um, that those Dead Sea Scrolls would have been in their community before the first or second century. Um, but again, that's a, that's a, another study, another kind of thing for another time. But it lets us know that those things were encapsulated in the Old Testament before the time of Christ. As a matter of fact, one of the greatest, in my opinion, probably the greatest Messianic prophecy, at least top two, uh, Isaiah 53. Phenomenal. Just, just incredible. Uh, the entire Isaiah 53 uh, chapter is found in the Isaiah scroll, uh, in the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, and it is word for word. There's only one extra word added, and I can't remember exactly what verse it was at. It's later on in the, in the chapter. Um, the word for light is added. Um, but other than that, it is 100% consistent, and the word light there doesn't change the, the, the prophecies or the meanings of anything. So, you know, having the Dead Sea Scrolls being found uh, last century was the greatest archaeological find ever uh, up to this point. And so they help us to determine that these prophecies were included in the Old Testament before the time of several centuries before the time of Christ. That's huge. So again, um, things just weren't added willy-nilly afterwards. They were included before. Okay. Um, so the like I mentioned, the the this class is based upon a class that I had in college. Uh, James E. Smith was a professor. Um, I'd highly recommend his book. Uh, it's called What the Bible Says About the Promised Messiah. I'm kind of following his uh, kind of progression uh, in there, but a lot of the stuff I've added uh, to my on my own over the last 20 years of, of teaching this. So I don't really know what's his and what's mine. Uh, it's probably, you know, 70% mine, 30% his. I just use his structure, his outline, um, and then I just add in, add in my own stuff. Um, so phenomenal book. Highly recommend getting it. Okay, so let's move along here. So the word Messiah, it's a Hebrew word, Mashiach. Uh, it means the anointed one. Uh, the, the other term, that's the Hebrew term. The Greek term is Christos, Christ. Uh, so Messiah and Christ mean the same thing. Messiah is Hebrew, Christ is Greek. Um, so that term, the, the word Messiah or anointed one, when referencing... <clears throat> 
when referencing the Messiah. I know it's kind of an odd way to say it, but the word anointed one was actually used of other people uh, in the Old Testament as well. Um, Cyrus in, in Isaiah uh, is called his anointed one, but we know he's not the Messiah. Um, so in reference to the promised one, the one that was going to be coming to, to create this, this new covenant, to, to deliver the people of God, that is used nine times in the Old Testament okay, to refer to him. And it's used twice in the New Testament. Okay, both in the Gospel of John, uh, chapter 1, verse 41, I believe, and John chapter 4, uh, verse 25, with the woman at the well. Okay, so when you're looking at the concept of anointed ones in the Old Testament, primarily there were three different categories of people that were, that were anointed. Prophets, priests, kings. So, uh, and it's kind of interesting that those were, were the ones that were anointed because Jesus actually, the Messiah, fulfills all three of those roles. And the other great thing is there's all kinds of prophecies relating to Jesus fulfilling all three of these roles. Um, so it's very, uh, you know, appropriate for Jesus to be called, for the Messiah to be called the anointed one, and for God to lay out this concept of anointing throughout the Old Testament. <clears throat> uh, so there's, there's two different types of, of prophecies uh, for Messianic prophecies that we're going to be kind of discussing. We've got general Messianic and we've got personal Messianic. General Messianic is, you know, kind of this concept of it's general, you know, a grand new glorious age is going to be coming. Um, so there's lots of prophecies in the Old Testament that deal with this, this new age that's going to be coming, um, you know, a new people and, and just everything is just going to be awesome. A lot of times they're um, referenced in relationship to physical blessings. Um, they're, you know, agrarian type type blessings. You know, there's going to be, you know, plenty of food, plenty of safety, uh, you know, plenty of peace. Um, and then when we get to the New Testament, we recognize that God makes a, a shift from the physical to the spiritual. And that helps us know that looking back, we're going to need to take those physical illustrations that he uses and, and recognize that they're actually spiritual in nature. So general Messianic prophecy deals with this grand new age uh, that, that's going to be out there. The personal Messianic prophecies, now these are specific. This is dealing with the Messiah, who he is as a prophet, priest, king, all different shepherd, servant, uh, all different types of titles, branch, um, all these amazing titles for him, uh, breaker, uh, it's just really cool things that, that are, that are out there. Um, the one, one of my favorites, Habakkuk chapter three, uh, where he, he kills the head of the house of evil with his own spear and spears and splits him from thigh to neck. I mean, for the guys, that's pretty good stuff, right? Uh, we, we like that, uh, you know, kind of, kind of conquering type concept. So that's what the personal Messianic prophecy is going to be. It's talking about him personally and the very specific things uh, that he's going to do, the roles he's going to fulfill, um, and why God is sending him. Now, how many Messianic prophecies are there? Well, I'll tell you what, you're going to get a different answer from just about anybody you talk to. Um, Edersheim stated that there were 456 prophecies or Messianic passages, 75 in the Pentateuch, 243 in the prophets, 138 in the writings. Now, what are those definitions breaking down Pentateuch, uh, the Torah, the prophets, the writings? The Hebrew Bible is actually written uh, in, in, in three sections. 
uh, you've got the law, you've got the prophets, and you've got the writings. Um, so that's so looking at it from a Hebrew perspective, that's why we we talk about those those three separate ones. Um, so you'll notice most of them are found in in the prophets, which you know kind of makes sense because that's one of the things that they were there to do. Um, you know, there's there's another uh, one um, Pearson uh, who said that there are 300 uh, messianic prophecies there. You're going to get all kinds of different numbers. Um, depending on this study, who knows how long we'll do it. Uh, I could spend two years on it. I have before, maybe. Um, you know, probably several months at least. Uh, we might go through anywhere between, you know, 30 and 70 uh, Messianic prophecies. But let's take that 300 number for a second. So one of the things that you're going to notice, and, and, and I actually would, would kind of lean towards that because... I'm going through proof that the Bible is the word of God study with, with a, a gentleman right now. Um, and we did this uh, last Tuesday. And so we, we went through Isaiah 53. And if you go through Isaiah 53, you'll notice, even though Isaiah 53 is one prophecy, there's several individual prophecies that are in there that relate to the same individual. So you could either look at that as one, or you could look at it as probably like 10. You know, he was scourged, he was pierced, he was, um, looks, looked like he was suffering for his iniquity, but actually he was suffering for our iniquity. He was silent as, as a sheep before its shears. He was, um, with a, uh, with, with, uh, you know, uh, robbers and thieves in his, in his death, but he, or, or, or his, his grave was assigned with the wicked, but he was with a rich man in his death. And then he was going to resurrect. And then his name was, he was being put to death as a guilt offering. Uh, God is the one that crushed him. Um, in that his name was going to spread throughout all of the earth. He would live long and see his, I mean, there's all these things, right? And every one of those is a prophecy. Now, the cool thing is this, the compounding nature of the prophecies. Now, we're not, we're not talking about something so general like a um, horoscope or a fortune cookie, right? Uh, so general that it can be applied to just about anything. This, the, all the little things I just listed, that happens to the same individual, not different people and hopefully something sticks. This all has to happen to the same individual, right? Psalm 22, you know, they pierce his hands and their feet. They garment or they, they, they uh, cast lots for his garments. Um, he had fluid build up around his heart. His heart was like wax melting within him. All of his bones, you could count them so they weren't broken. Um, his bones are out of joint, which if you, if you look at what happens in crucifixions, that's the case. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? You know, the, the accusations that there were, or the abuse that was hurled at him by, by the chief priest about, hey, let him delight in him. Let him get himself off the cross if he delights in him. Um, and again, the concept of the resurrection being hidden in there. So the, all of these things apply to the same individual, right? So what Pearson did is he said, okay, let, let's take a look. 300 specific uh, predictions. Law of compound probability. What are the chances of all of these predictions coming true about a specific person, specific place, specific time, all the things that, that are mentioned in these prophecies, 300 individual predictions. And I think you can make the case that there's probably more than that, but let's just take 300. Now, I'm not a math guy. Um, I am a little bit, but not this kind of math. Uh, I would imagine you got to use 
you know, letters in this kind of math. And I like numbers. I'm not necessarily a letters guy. Uh, so <laughs> law of compound probability, someone else can check this out if they want to. The chances of 300 uh, individual predictions coming true about a, about a single person is one with eight, eight to 84 to the hundred, or uh, 184 with a hundred zeros after it to the hundredth power. Okay. So one to 84 with a hundred zeros after that. It's kind of impossible. See, so in other words, this, what, what God did is he put so much specific information out there about this Messiah, about this individual that was coming, that it is, it is a statistical impossibility that he just kind of randomly hit these. I would be interested to see, because Isaiah 53 is kind of the, the, the cornerstone uh, another name for Christ, right? Uh, the cornerstone of a lot of these prophecies. I'd be curious to see how many individual, we ought to do that sometime, how many individual predictions are found in Isaiah 53, taking the law of compound probability, what are the chances of just Isaiah 53 coming true about a specific individual? Um, and again, because one of the reasons I like that is because we know for a fact Isaiah 53 was written before all of these things took place, before the New Testament. All right, so let's continue to move on. Um, so how do we know um, if a passage is prophetic? How do we know it's dealing with, with the Messiah? A few different things that we'll take a look at, and we'll, we'll get into some scripture here. Um, first one is what's called the contextual principle. In other words, a passage that cannot without violence pertain to anyone else but the Messiah. In other words, the passage itself has to be the Messiah. So let's go to Daniel 9 for a second. I'm going to make this one really easy. Okay, Daniel 9. <laughs> and you'll see that you have to do a lot of violence to make this not be about the Messiah. So Daniel 9, verse 24, it says 70 weeks have been decreed. So 70 period of seven years. All right, so 490 years. And, and this is one of the prophecies we'll go over in, in, in detail later on. Seventy weeks have been decreed for your people in your holy city to finish transgression, to make an end of sin, to make atonement for iniquity, to bring an everlasting righteousness, to seal up vision and prophecy, to anoint the most holy place. Okay, not bad. Now look at verse 25. So you are to know and to discern that from the issuing of the decree, the decree to restore and rebuild Jerusalem until Messiah, the prince, there will be seven weeks and 62 weeks that will be built again with plaza and moat, even in times of distress. Then after the 62 weeks, the Messiah will be cut off and have nothing. And the people of the prince who is to come will destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end will come with a flood. Even to the end, there will be war. And you know, rest of the passage there. So twice, Messiah is used there. Messiah, the prince, one time there, right? So it's going to be really hard. <laughs> Without doing extreme violence to the passage, which, you know, you guys know the way it works. Just because something's hard doesn't mean that it doesn't get done. Um, look at how people do violence to something like Acts 2.38. I mean, it's just, it's brutal what, what gets done to those, those passages. So you're, you're going to have to do a lot of violence. So the context in this particular case um, makes it really, really clear that we're talking about the Messiah. Okay. Now, what about, what about the Jewish principle? Did the Jews view something historically from the Old Testament as Messianic? Well, yeah. So let's head over to Matthew chapter 2 for a second, and let's take a look at this one. 
Now, this one you got to be careful because just because the, the, the ancient Jews viewed this as something that was messianic doesn't mean that it was. Um, you know, but it does lend some credence, especially if, if there's there, you know, the context. And a lot of times what you'll find is several of these principles kind of lending in uh, to interpret something like that. So uh, Matthew chapter 2, and we will start in verse 1. It says, Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, Magi from the east uh, in Jerusalem, uh, Ma- sorry, Magi from the east arrived in Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star in the east and have come to worship him. Then uh, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled, and all Jerusalem with him. Gathering together all the chief priests, scribes, and the people, he inquired of them where the Messiah was to be born. They said to him, In Bethlehem of Judea, for this is what was written by the prophet. And you, Bethlehem, and land of Judah, are by no means least among the leaders of Judah. For out of you shall come forth a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Well, that's a quote out of Micah chapter 5. So that lets us know that the Jews at that time viewed Micah chapter 5 as Messianic, Jewish principle, right? And in all actuality, Micah chapter 5 uh, would also be the last uh, principle that we looked at, the context. You would have to do a lot of violence to that passage to make it apply to anything else. Because in that passage, the one that was being born, his goings forth are from the days of eternity. So you're going to have someone that's born that's eternal. That the only eternal one is God. So you see what I'm saying? You, you got to do violence to the context uh, to, be able to, fig- to, to be able to make something other than, than the Messiah fit. Uh, one of the other ones is the analogy principle. And I already brought up these two passages already. In other words, a passage that is very clearly messianic, um, you have another passage that's very much like it. So for example, uh, Isaiah 53 and Psalm 22 both outline the process of crucifixion, right? Hands and feet being pierced. Um, you know, in Psalm 22, he was pierced through for our transgressions in Isaiah 53, scourged for our iniquities. Um, both died, both resurrected. So that kind of lets us know that Psalm 22 um, and Isaiah 53 are talking about the same individual, number one, and number two, the same event happening to the same individual. All right. So that's the analogy principle. Uh, transcendence principle. Uh, you know, when you have a description of a person and the blessings that they bestow uh, are far above the blessings that a human being can bestow. Again, the Micah chapter 5, his comings forth are from days of eternity, right? So how can somebody be physically born or, or an eternal person be physically born? That's not going to be, you know, someone like David or, you know, um, you know someone like Aaron or, or Moses or something like that. Uh, one of the last ones we'll, ch- we'll check out the event principle. In other words, the fulfillment principle. Um, a lot of times fulfillment makes us understand that something was, was prophetic. Okay. Uh, let's head over to Luke chapter 24 for a second. One of my, one of my favorite passages, uh, about Christ here, Luke chapter 24, and we're going to be in verse number, uh, 25. Uh, this is when he was talking to the, the two on the road to Emmaus, right? And you know, when they're like, oh, we thought he was going to be the Messiah. Then verse 25, he says, Jesus says, and he said to them, oh, foolish men and slow of heart to believe in all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary for the Christ to suffer these things and to enter into his glory? Then beginning with Moses and with all the prophets, he explained to them all the things concerning himself in all the scriptures. Now think about that Bible study. How cool would that have been, right? So 
we, we see that kind of being laid out there. And what, what Jesus is doing there is he is telling these guys, these are the things that were talked about about me. These are the things that have been fulfilled. And he opened up the scripture and just explained it all to him by fulfillment. Um, <clears throat> also, Gospel of Matthew, 20-some-odd uh, times, um, you know, to fulfill the scripture. You know, this was to fulfill what was written. Um, so Matthew uses that concept quite a bit. And then the last one, uh, and again, there's probably more, um, but the authority principle, in other words, does the New Testament say it was a prophecy? And we'll get into that here a little bit more in a second too, because I think that's something that, that's kind of important uh, for us to kind of kind of recognize. Um, if the New Testament says, hey, this passage in the Old Testament is relating to the church, relating to the Messiah, and this is what it means, that's what it means. Uh, we don't have the ability to say, yeah, it might mean that, but it might also mean this. No, if, if we've got a divine um, inspired interpretation through the pages of the New Testament, you know, we're kind of going to go with that. So, so what, what, are, what are the um, chief purposes of Messianic prophecy? Well, we already talked about one, the evidential value that it provides to our faith. High, highly prioritize that as, as one of the main, main purposes. Um, one also kind of the, the on the face one is, you know, to prepare the way for the Messiah so that we know who he was and who he is, you know, um, lots of people out there. Hey, I'm the Messiah. I'm the Messiah. Well, how do we know? Well, we got all these prophecies. He's fulfilling these. It can be documented. We can know. Um, one of the other reasons why, was he it was preparing Israel for the grafting into the Gentiles. Was this needed? Well, let's ask this question. Even though God spent a lot of time preparing the grafting into the Gentiles in the Old Testament, did the first century church have a problem grafting in the Gentiles? Did the Jews and the Gentiles have a problem getting along? Yeah. I mean, the book of Galatians primarily, right? Philippians as well. Uh, Acts 15. Matter of fact, if you go there, uh, we see that they had a whole council meeting to figure out, you know, what kind of uh, uh, bonds were going to be put upon the Gentiles in order to become Christians. Um, another one, uh, another reason why Messianic prophecy was in there, and I don't think we can ignore this, this, this at all, um, to sustain the faith of Israel during times of calamity. Now, this is, this is hugely important. Let's go to Jeremiah 33, for example. Jeremiah 33. Now, in Jeremiah 33, I mean, Jeremiah probably had one of the hardest jobs of anybody in the Old Testament. He was dealing with the nation, uh, southern kingdom, uh, Judah, as, it was, as God was preparing to destroy them uh, for the, all of their wickedness and idolatry. I mean, their, their wickedness exceeded that um, of the Amorites, which, which, was, which was pretty horrible, uh, especially under the reign of Manasseh, right? So the book of, the book of Jeremiah, he's constantly, constantly negative, constantly judging them. Um, trying to get people to repent. So let's, let's head up to Jeremiah 33, um, and let's go to verse 22. Now, this is when Jeremiah is imprisoned. He says, Thus says the Lord who made the earth and the Lord, Jeremiah 33, 2, Thus says the Lord who made the earth, the Lord who formed it and established it, the Lord is his name, call to me and I will answer you. He's talking to Jeremiah. And I will tell you great and mighty things which you do not know. For thus says the Lord God of Israel concerning the houses of the city and concerning the houses of the kings of Judah, which are broken down to make a defense against the siege ramps and against the sword. 
uh, while they are coming to fight with the Chaldeans and to fill them with the corpses of men whom I have slain in my anger and in my wrath, and I have hidden my face from the city because of all their wickedness. Kind of negative, right? But notice what he says. Behold, I will bring it to health and healing, and I will heal them, and I will reveal to them an abundance of peace and truth. I will restore the fortunes of Judah and the fortunes of Israel and will rebuild them as they were at first. I will cleanse them from all their iniquity by which they have sinned against me. I will pardon all their iniquities by which they have sinned against me and by which they have transgressed against me. It will be to me a name of joy, praise, and glory before all the nations of the earth, which will hear of all the good that I do for them, and they will fear and tremble because of all the good and the peace that I will make for it. And the whole rest of the chapter is dealing with that. Why would God give that type of peace to people he was about to destroy? Well, it wasn't for them necessarily. Think about the people that were in captivity. We know for a fact by looking at the book of Daniel that the scroll of Jeremiah made it to Babylon in the lifetime of, of, of uh, Daniel. So this would have given the captives that were there, the remnant, the peace and, and the comfort that they would have needed after the destruction of Jerusalem to allow them to, to say, God is going to restore us. This very well could have helped pave the way for the restoration that was going to take place when the Persians overtook Jerusalem or uh, uh, Babylon. Uh, also, uh, another thing to, to promote holiness among God's people, to help them to see, and this is, I think a big one, what God was planning on doing. Let's head over to, to Ezekiel 36 for a second. I know I'm going kind of fast, but I know this is also being recorded and you'll be able to, you know, take it and, and slow down and, and do whatever you need to do with it. Ezekiel 36, and I'm going to start, uh, in verse 22, and kind of the same concept here that we saw in Jeremiah to a certain extent. He says, uh, Ezekiel 36, uh, verse 22, Therefore, uh, say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, It is not for your sake, O house of Israel, that I'm about to act, but for my holy name, which you have profaned among the nations where you went. I will vindicate the holiness of my great name, which has been profaned among the nations, which you have profaned in their midst. Kind of sounds like he's getting a theme across, right? The people of God have been profaning profaning the name of God. And so God is going to act and he is going to glorify his name, but we haven't found out how yet. Okay. He says, then the nations will, uh, sorry, then the nations will know that I am the Lord declares the Lord God. When I prove myself holy among you in their sight. Now look what he, here's what he's going to do. For I will take you from the nations, gather you from all the lands and bring you into your own land. Then I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you will be clean, and I will cleanse you from all your filthiness and from all your idols. Now look at this one too. Now that could, that could just be dealing with you know the, the cleansing that comes uh, from our conversion, which absolutely, it's amazing. Verse 26, Moreover, I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you, and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes." And you will be careful to observe my ordinances. You will live in the land that I give to your forefathers so that uh, uh, you will be my people and I will be your God. Moreover, I will save you from all your uncleanness and I will call for the grain and multiply it and I will not bring a famine upon you. So notice what he's doing there, right? Um, so we, we have the concept here um, of, of God really just kind of dealing with... Um, uh, you know, this whole concept of what the character of the people are going to be, 
that he's going to bring about. Okay, so again, exceedingly important for us to kind of pay attention to this, um, this concept. This is what we're going to see all throughout the Old Testament. Okay, same thing you can find in Zechariah chapter 9, verses 5 through 9. Um, also, one of the things, the reasons that uh, God gives these prophecies is to testify of his wisdom and sovereignty over the future. Uh, Daniel chapter 2, Daniel chapter 9, uh, especially Daniel chapter 2, you know, uh, Nebuchadnezzar with the, uh, the statue, God explaining to Nebuchadnezzar what the whole concept's going to be and how that small stone is going to strike at the time of, of the Roman Empire, the fourth beast, or the, well, it is the fourth beast later on, but the fourth metal, uh, the legs and the, the uh, feet of iron and clay. Um, and then we talked about the evidential value uh, of the Bible. All right, so um, think about, we'll, we'll deal with this too, this concept real quick. The people at the time of Christ, were they expecting a Messiah? Well, yeah, they were. You know, and, and we can see that in, in a lot of different ways. Um, let's head over to Luke chapter 2. And again, one of the reasons why we have to ask ourselves a question, why were they anticipating, right, uh, why were they anticipating everything? Um, what, we, what we really have here is this concept of um, some of these prophecies that we see in uh, the Old Testament, um, like Daniel, Daniel chapter 9, which if Isaiah 53 is my favorite Messianic prophecy. Daniel chapter 9 is my second, and they might be tied for first because what Daniel chapter 9 does is it actually goes through and it tells us um, what we actually uh, what we actually have um, with the date that the Messiah was going to be um, immersed, right? So that's going to be something that's going to be really kind of important there. Uh, the very year that the Messiah was going to appear shows up there. Uh, really kind of cool. So we're not the only ones who can figure that out. The, the, the first century uh, folks could figure that out too. So in, in Luke chapter 2, uh, one of the things we want to take a look at here um, is, let's see, we want to go to verse 25. And it says, and there was a man, and it's the time Jesus was born, right? And there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was, a righteous, was righteous and devout, looking for the consolation of Israel. It's another name for the Messiah. And the Holy Spirit was upon him, and it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death until he had seen the Lord's Christ. So he was looking for the consolation of Israel. And it seems like, according to the context, that he was looking for the context, or the, the, the consolation of Israel, even before God told him that he was going to receive or see him. Then we go down a little bit to verse 36. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel, the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years and had lived with her husband seven years after her marriage, and then as a widow to the age of 84. She never left the temple, serving night and day with fastings and prayers. At that very moment, she came up and began giving thanks to God and continued to speak of him to all those who were looking for the redemption of Jerusalem. Why were there people looking for the redemption of Jerusalem? You see, there was, there was an expectation, there was a messianic expectation of that happening at this time, okay? Um, so uh, let's go to Mark chapter 15 for a second too. Just a couple pages back. Mark chapter 15, and let's look at verse 42. This is after Jesus was crucified. It says, When evening had already come, 
because it was the preparation day, that is, the day before the Sabbath, Joseph of Arimathea came, a prominent member of the council, who himself was waiting for the kingdom of God. And he gathered up courage and went before Pilate and asked for the body of Jesus. Why is he waiting for the kingdom of God? Because it was supposed to happen then. They had an expectation that that was supposed to take place. The thief on the cross in Luke 23, 42. You know, remember me when you come into your kingdom. What's going on there? Um, everybody else had turned their back on him, but, but the thief had an understanding that Jesus was the Messiah. He, was still, he still had a kingdom that, that was coming. And this whole crucifixion thing didn't put him off. Okay, he had amazing faith. All right, let's uh, keep going. I am not even halfway done with my introduction. So we got 10 minutes left. Let's, uh, let's go ahead and, and start cranking this out here. Um, I'm going to skip that part because that's not necessary at this particular point. All right, do some editing on the go here. What this concept of, and and you'll run into this with folks, uh, especially folks that come from more of a premillennial type of of an approach, this concept of double fulfillment. Uh, In other words, there's there's one fulfillment uh, that is kind of on the face, but then there's another fulfillment that's coming after it. The kind of neat thing about that is you don't need any evidence for something like that, right? You can just say, oh, it's a double fulfillment. And it's just what's going to, it's just what's going to be taking place going forward. Well, maybe, maybe not. Um, you know, if there's no proof for anything like that, uh, how do we know that this is, you know, a, a real thing or not? Let's go to the book of Acts and let's take a look at this for a second. Acts chapter 2. I'm firmly of the camp. When God clearly states, this is what was meant. This fulfills this. We're done, right? So I can either listen to somebody else or I can listen to God. And that's really kind of what it boils down to. So Acts chapter 2, let's look at verse 14. Okay, this is right after, you know, the sound is a mighty rushing wind, tongues as a fire, and then speaking with other, other tongues and languages. And everyone's like, what's going on here? What's happening? So Peter in verse 14, chapter 2, verse 14 says, But Peter, taking a stand with the eleven, raised his voice and declared to them, Men of Judea and all of you who live in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give heed to my words. For these men are not drunk as you suppose, for it is only the third hour of the day. But this is what was spoken of through the prophet Joel. And then he quotes out of Joel chapter 2. So guess what Joel chapter 2 was talking about? What Peter exactly said it was talking about. So it doesn't matter that, you know, it's verse 20 and, you know, the sun will be turned to darkness and the moon into blood. People are actually looking for the moon to turn to blood or red and, oh no, this is what Joel was. No, what Joel was talking about was the day of Pentecost. That's it. Because that's what Peter said. And I don't care, you know, who the preacher is, who the teacher is. They don't know more than Peter. Guarantee it. Right? So pay attention to that kind of stuff. When God says, this is what this means, then that's what this means. Another one that's always kind of, always find interesting, Acts 15. Acts 15. Verse 13. 
council at Jerusalem talking about the Gentiles being included inside the kingdom and what needs to be done with them. It says, after they stopped speaking, James answered saying, brethren, listen to me. Simeon had related about how God first concerned himself about taking from among the Gentiles a people for his name. With this, the words of the prophets agree, just as it is written, after these things I will return and I will rebuild the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, and I will rebuild its ruins and I will restore it, so that the rest of mankind may seek the Lord and all the Gentiles who are called by my name, says the Lord who makes these things known from long ago. Now, if you've dealt with premillennial folks before, you know that they love talking about this particular passage and saying this is relating to the second, or I guess that'd be the third temple, right? The rebuilt temple in Jerusalem that's going to be on the side of the Dome of the Rock uh, that, you know, David and Jesus are both going to sit there on the throne together and they're going to reinstitute the Levitical priesthood. Sacrifices are going to be animal sacrifices. Animal sacrifices. After Jesus shed his blood, Animal sacrifices are going to be offered again, and Jesus and David are going to say, yeah, good job on the animal sacrifices when Jesus is the one who shed his blood. Trampling underfoot the blood of the covenant, absolutely staggering me. So what we see here is that the rebuilding of the tabernacle of David, which has fallen, had already been in the process of taking place. This isn't about some physical temple in Jerusalem. This is about the church and specifically about the Gentiles coming into the church. That's what James said. And it's in the New Testament. I think I'm going to go with that. I'll go with that. You know, the left-behind books can, can have their own theology. Uh, John Hagee can have his. You know, I'll stick with James. Yeah, not bad. All right, uh, a couple more things here, and we will uh, kind of roll here uh, and finish up. Um, now, just because there's not double fulfillment doesn't mean that there's not progressive fulfillment. And we're actually going to get into this next week when we get into Genesis chapter 3, because Genesis chapter 3 is a great concept of progressive fulfillment. And the, the, the prophecy goes something like this, you know, where, where you know, uh, God is, is condemning the serpent. And he said, you know, you're, you know I'm going to bring about my seed um, and he's going to crush you on the head, but you're going to bruise him on the heel. So the crushing on the head actually has a few stages, doesn't it? There's, there's the initial crushing, uh, you know, and you ever kill a snake, you know, they're still flopping around after, you know, they've struck the mortal blow. Um, so Jesus at his resurrection and ascension, you know, crushes that head. He, he's as good as gone, but he's still writhing around and you better not get too close because he can, he can take you out. In Romans chapter 16, verse 20, uh, let's go there real quick. just so you can get it in context here, Romans 16, 20. Um, and we'll, we'll go to 19 for a little bit more immediate context. It says, For the report of your obedience is reached to all. Therefore, I am rejoicing over you. But I want you to be wise in what is good, innocent in what is evil, and the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. I don't know of a more direct uh, throwback to Genesis 3 than this. So not only does Jesus did Jesus crush the head, that gives the, the ultimate victory, but that doesn't guarantee the victory in the individual Christian or the individual person. They have to then start to walk in that victory, walking in that crushing and, and do the crushing themselves too. And then finally, um, he'll be tossed into the lake of fire there at the end. 
to complete the fulfillment. So progressive fulfillment, yeah, I, I can get that. I can get behind that concept um, as long as it's kind of well documented and not fantasy. Um, you know, we we need to be able to make sure. And again, we talk about premillennialism there a little bit. Look, I, it's not going to be a, a class on premillennialism, you know, but um, we're going to inevitably kind of kind of bump up against that stuff. So you have to just really make sure that you define your foundational arguments really, really well. Because uh, if you start to, you know, get lost in the apocalyptic literature, you can, you know, kind of get taken for a little bit of a ride. But if you have your fundamental suppositions nailed down, you're, 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 you're good to go. Okay. Um, let's see. Uh, last one we'll, we'll kind of deal with this concept of could Jesus not be the Messiah and then a Messiah still, you know, people are still waiting for him. Could he come now? Just briefly, and we'll go over these, uh, several prophecies say no. Genesis chapter 49 verse 10 says that the, the, the ruler staff shall not depart from Judah nor the scepter from between his feet until Shiloh comes and to him shall be the obedience of the people. In other words, the Messiah had to come during the days of Judah still being a tribe. Judah is not a tribe anymore. They weren't a tribe. Uh, they were completely destroyed, wiped out, no lineage starting in 70 AD. So Jesus had to have come before 70 AD. And we'll get into that when we get there. Daniel 9, 24 and 25, again, very clear. Jesus had to come by 26 AD. Very, very clear. Um, in Daniel chapter two, you know, Jesus had to come during the, the, during the time of the fourth kingdom there, Rome, uh, you know, the, the feet of, of iron and clay. And then in Haggai chapter two, verses seven through nine, that's Zerubbabel's temple. Jesus, the Messiah was going to have to come during the time frame of Zerubbabel's temple, uh, because he says the later glory will be uh, greater than the former glory. Uh, so that's really kind of important. So it's, it, you know, we'll, we'll get into that, that passage as well. So Jesus, he had the right lineage, tribe of Judah, line of David, right time during the Roman Empire, the second temple, Judah still intact. He had the right credentials, performed miracles, uh, caused people to rise from the dead, all kinds of amazing things. All of these things were, uh, you, know, you know, the blind sea, those types of things. And also the predicted response. He was going to be rejected, forsaken. But yet he was going to rise from the dead and his name is going to be made great and spread throughout the, the, the ends of the earth, which is exactly what we have. All right. So that's it for tonight. Uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to actually stop the recording, uh, but then I'll open it up and see if we have any questions. So hold on one moment. And uh, thanks a lot for, for joining tonight.